Easter, Calvary Church. It's wonderful to be here together today to worship the Lord. And as you know, Easter Sunday is the culmination of our week-long celebration of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, beginning with Palm Sunday and His entrance into Jerusalem and being hailed as the King. And then, of course, His death on the cross on Friday uh, during that week. And then, of course, today we celebrate His resurrection from the dead. And we think about, so many of these things are so familiar to us, but we think about the cross of Jesus Christ. There's so many other things that capture our attention as well. We wonder about going all the way back to His incarnation that, you know, as the Son of God, He lived eternally in glory, but yet would humble Himself to become one of us to save us from our sin. And we think about, well, we read in the gospel accounts about His earthly life, uh, the sinless Son of Man who would suffer unrighteously, but yet do it all to redeem a people for Himself. And even when we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, that's not the end of the story, really. It's not just that, oh, He was raised from the dead to die again, but He ascended into glory, back with the glory He had with the Father. And He reigns on high as our King, and He's going to be coming again to consummate His kingdom in its fullness. There's so much more to the story that the resurrection promises us and this cross is, is our redemption from sin. Jesus is now glorified as the eternal Redeemer. And that's who He is, and He redeemed us. And His resurrection guarantees our own resurrection as well, those of us who believe in Him, into the same resurrection glory. We get our bodies back, yes, but in a new glorious state just like our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can read all about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you want to know more details. But He's given to us the Holy Spirit internally and those who believe in Jesus as a guarantee of this future glory because when we are with Him, we will never die again and our bodies will never undergo corruption again. They'll be fitted to live eternally in the presence of God. Well, Matthew is what we've been studying this year on our, on our Passion series. And so we began with Matthew's account of Palm Sunday in Matthew 21. And we continue looking at the, the crucifixion in Matthew 27 on Good Friday. Today we'll be looking at Matthew's account of the resurrection in Matthew 28. And hopefully you've had a, some extra time this week to just spend reading the ending of Matthew's gospel and uh, using that in your prayer time and your personal worship with the Lord. Well, let me just read our text to you this morning and briefly pray, and then we'll take a look at it together. So Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath... <clears throat> Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. 
And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the holy scriptures that you have given to us and preserved for us through the centuries, that we as your people, as your church, can know the truth and the power of the resurrection, and how all of this fits into your glorious purposes in the history of redemption, even to this age and to our purposes in this world. And we pray this morning that you would guide our meditation and our study. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. So what you're going to see in Matthew's account of the resurrection, by the way, we have four different accounts from the gospel writers, but in Matthew's account, he is directly tying the resurrection to the church's mission. The resurrection of Jesus Christ then impels the church to its mission. And so Jesus is raised from the dead, and then Jesus himself here gives us the authoritative application, if you will, of his resurrection. And that is to go and make disciples of all the peoples of the world. And so Matthew chooses to end his gospel account here with this, with this compelling missionary emphasis, and he presents the resurrection of Jesus Christ to motivate his church. In verses 1 to 10, we see the historical account of the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 11 to 15, we see the abiding need to be proclaiming the truth about the resurrection. And in verses 16 to 20, we read about this abiding application of missions from the resurrection. So again, Jesus was crucified. <clears throat> he was buried on Friday. As we observed in Matthew in chapter 27, well, now it's early Sunday morning in the storyline, and Jesus Christ has already been raised from the dead. Now, as I mentioned, there are four different uh, accounts of Jesus' resurrection, and if you want to do it, it's a very large task, but you can try to integrate all four accounts and come up with a, with a full chronology if you want. Well, uh, if you're excited about that project, good luck. But there are at least three different ways that that can be harmonized. But the emphasis that's more important today is to focus on the distinctive emphasis of the gospel writer we're looking at. And we'll do a little bit of the harmonization as we go along, so hopefully you won't get tripped up in the storylines that you're familiar with. But it's all about understanding what is it that the Apostle Matthew wants the church to know, wants us to know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look at the first thing he does, and that is to recount for us the history of the event in verses 1 through 10. So it begins with just the resurrection account in verses 1 to 4, and I'll just read it again quickly for us, Matthew 28, 1 to 4. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
So we have Mary Magdalene, we have Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who was just mentioned earlier in our passage in chapter 27. So they leave very early on a Sunday morning to visit the tomb. Now we also know from Mark's gospel that Salome was there, and perhaps even some others went. Um, And this was very common up to the third day after someone had died to anoint the body as an act of love, and that's what the women are simply doing in this time and in this culture. It's similar to us today even, where we'll repeatedly go to the graveside after someone uh, dies and after the funeral and, and bring flowers uh, to the site. And so they go to see this tomb of Jesus' body, but they return, as we know in the story, as witnesses of the resurrected Lord. And so in verses 2 to 4, Matthew's actually giving us a historical flashback to the actual resurrection. In fact, this is the closest account we have of an actual narration of the event itself, the resurrection. And he begins with the word, behold, or the words, take a look. And he's talking to his readers. He's talking to us. He's saying, take a look at what I'm telling you in the story. Behold, Jesus has been raised. So a brilliant angel of the Lord comes with an earthquake, opens the tomb, and then sits triumphantly upon the stone. So the worry of the women and how they're going to get the tomb open is taken care of much more gloriously than they had hoped, but it's also been said by others that the tomb was open not so that Jesus could get out, but so that we can go in and see that Jesus has truly been raised from the dead. And so the guard of the soldiers witnessed these events, and they fainted like dead men in fear. You see the irony? Matthew loves irony, and here it is again. So the soldiers are now like dead men, but Jesus is alive. And they're paralyzed by this glorious presence and the actions of God in Jesus Christ and by the angel. And you wonder, would they believe? You would be inclined to think they would, but we'll see what happens as the story unfolds. And then we have the witness and appearance in verses 5 to 7. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and, that he, and behold, he will, is going before you in Galilee, and there you will see him, just as I've said. So the angel speaks to these women's fears, their perplexity about really what had happened, and they make it very clear the crucified one is now the risen one. I mean, that's the gospel message in a nutshell of the whole church, the one who is crucified and risen. That's Jesus Christ. It's all here. He was crucified for our sins, and He was risen from the dead for our justification. So the angel reminds um, them of Jesus' own repeated words about His resurrection. So if you go back and you read Matthew, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20, He talks to them repeatedly about the fact that He would rise from the dead, just like He said. And they are instructed to go quickly and tell Jesus' disciples, not only that he's risen, but he's on his way to Galilee, like he said, and that's where you'll meet him. So if you look back in chapter 26, yeah, Jesus set up the meeting place where they would meet. You know, so many things come to mind as you read the gospel accounts, and one of the things that comes to mind is how the disciples seem to be so weak and so slow to believe all the time. And their discipleship failures seem to multiply. But they're going to be overturned soon enough because these 11 disciples will become the apostles of Jesus Christ and the apostles of the church to the world. 
And so the women do run quickly with this urgent and exciting message. And Matthew intends us, yes, to see how this all ties in with how he's going to end the story. We're supposed to run and tell the world quickly about Jesus. It all fits together. And so they go with great joyful astonishment as we read in verses 8 to 10. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, ran to tell his disciples. And then, behold, Jesus meets them and says, Greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So on their way, the risen Christ greets them and confirms everything for them. And they grab his feet and worship him as one would in the ancient Near East of a sovereign king in his presence. He's God. Jesus Christ is God, and so they worship Him, and He is the divine Messiah of His people. Now, meanwhile, we know from the Gospel of Luke and John that Peter and John are busy checking out the tomb because most likely Mary Magdalene had already run ahead of them all and had gotten there and told them. So Jesus then calms their fears and repeats the instructions to go tell His brothers, His brethren, meaning either all of his disciples or maybe the 11 specifically who he would restore soon. And then again, go meet me in Galilee. Now, there are other appearances that Jesus made that are recorded in the Scriptures, but Matthew's not interested in telling us about those at this time. But what he seems to be very interested in telling us about is something that doesn't appear to be that important, and that is Galilee. Go to Galilee. This is now the second time that it's mentioned, and it'll be brought up again at the very end. Galilee is mentioned three times. Why is this so important to meet Jesus? Well, it's where his ministry began, where the light shining in a dark world, it symbolizes the worldwide mission of the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim. And if we go back to the very beginning of the book of Matthew, this is where it all starts. So in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following, we read, Now, when he heard that John, speaking of John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea by the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is why Galilee is important. And Matthew puts before us simply the historical account of the glorious resurrection of Jesus, and it confirms that the gospel of Jesus Christ is in fact God's truth for the world. Jesus is the divine Messiah. And so, He leads us like the women too to worship Jesus as our Lord, as our God, as our Christ. There is no other God. There's no other gospel that will save from sins. This is it. This is God's glorious plan. And this is what the Apostle Matthew has been showing all throughout his gospel account. And if you had time this week to read the final chapters of the book, you'll see that this is a repeated emphasis of the Apostle Matthew to convince us of the gospel. And so, as disciples of Jesus Christ this morning, we we listen to our apostle. 
We listen to Matthew and what he's presenting, that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead and that Jesus himself would give the application of his resurrection to his church at the very end, and that is to go make disciples of all the peoples of the world. Now, second of all, there's this need to proclaim the truth about the resurrection because, you know, while the women are on their way to go tell the apostles, tell the disciples that Jesus is raised from the dead, well, the soldiers are on their way to someone else, and they're on their way to the chief priests to tell them what happened as well. And so the evil plot of the resurrection denial gets exposed by Matthew here in verses 11 to 15. So he writes, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they had given a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So here's Matthew's apologetic, if you will, or defense against what was known as the stolen body theory. And it was circulating in his day. It's still circulating in our day as well, by the way. But these verses reveal the extent of the wicked unbelief of the Jewish leaders. I mean, it was just in chapter 27, 42, where they said they would believe if he came down from the cross, didn't they? Well, he's come down from the cross, and they won't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's just like Jesus said, that his resurrection would be for them a sign of judgment. You know, here's, if you look back in chapter 27, verses 62 and following, here's the conclusion to the burial episode. The next day, that is the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So what would happen to the security measures? I mean, by posting a guard, they try to prohibit Jesus' body from being stolen by his disciples and subsequently having Jesus proclaimed risen from the dead But now the divine irony again is that they've had to create a lie against their own efforts, saying that his disciples did steal the body, all because the resurrection was actually true. And so some of the guard goes and reports everything to the chief priests. I mean, some of the guard, maybe some of them for all of the guard, maybe maybe some of the other guys believed or were terrified. But some of them go to the chief priests and they say, they tell them everything that happened. Oh, there's an earthquake. They tell them about the earthquake, they tell them about the angel, tell them about the empty tomb. And amazingly, they remain unbelieving witnesses, it seems. For they'll readily accept the bribe and spread the lie of the stolen body, even to their own disgrace, that they were asleep when it all happened. So they're so fearful of punishment when they should have been more fearful of Jesus, the risen Lord. But... This plan then, this is the plan that's figured out by the Jewish leaders. It gets recorded for us in verses 12 to 15. The Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jewish people, are going to take care of the deal. Take care of the deal. If there are any problems that come from Pilate, you know, that he might give the guards because they were too lazy, they'll bribe them some more. And they finish their evil plot against Jesus just like they began it. You remember how it began? They gave Judas 30 pieces of silver. The betrayer 
paying off people again to promote a lie. The desperation of the Sanhedrin is evidenced even further by the fact that it's just highly unlikely that the disciples would risk capital punishment in a situation like this to steal the body of Jesus. And the apparent lack of prosecution of the disciples for allegedly stealing him. And the book of Acts, if you read Luke's book of Acts after this, it continues to reveal this insane, unbelieving opposition against Jesus as the Christ. Their violent, relentless pursuit of the apostles and the church to try to discredit the truth. You see, like Matthew, we can also expect a variety of responses, both responses, belief and unbelief, when we report to people the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew exposes the stolen body theory, which would then he wants to encourage a true faith in Jesus Christ and embolden his church to go after those who promote false explanations. Well, there are other theories besides the stolen body theory out there, and you you can go find the books and read them on your own if you'd like. But the simple fact is that the best historical explanation of the empty tomb is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is a key evidentialist apologetic. I mean, some of you here might be into apologetics, and if you are, this is one of the key evidentialist apologetics about the who is Jesus and his his claims. And and most people, you know, really haven't considered this seriously enough anyway um, to think about what does it actually mean that someone has been raised from the dead, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there are plenty of resources out there. In fact, one really easy one to read and to, and to give to people came out a few years ago called The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. You know, he was a former atheist and a reporter, um, and he just simply gives a reporter's reports of the case for Jesus' resurrection. But, you know, today, you know, I remember back, you know, college days, all the evidentialist apologetics seemed to be, uh, be the rage and, and worked. But today you'll get much more likely to get people to agree with you. Uh, they're not as anti-supernaturalist as people used to be, and they'll just say, okay, fine, he was raised, so what? And so I suppose there are a couple different uh, responses. I thought one I think that's pretty interesting is that, you know, there's the assumption that, well, he was just sort of naturally just raised from the dead, and I suppose he'll die again. I mean, that's probably what comes into most people's minds when they think about it. But that's not the story. The rest of the story is he didn't just rise from the dead, but he rose in a glorious body, and then he didn't die again. He actually ascended into glory where he reigns now. So guess what? He still lives, and he's coming for you. That's a lot more important and a lot more reason to be afraid. It's a bigger deal. And, of course, you can talk about the difference that it makes theologically. He's raised from the dead and how it brings full salvation to you. You know, Matthew models for us how to answer those who deny the resurrection. You just simply present them with the historical facts and as we have them recorded, and you can provide some additional resources for those who want them. But as we use Scripture along with prayer, our trust is in God who alone opens up a heart. can't convince anyone to become a Christian. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is faithfully tell people the story of the gospel as it's recorded in Scripture and answer their questions. But God has to open their hearts to believe. But it is true that often once someone just starts intellectually examining the Scriptures and and the account of the resurrection or even just starts thinking about it, it becomes overwhelming. And they're led, led to consider some of Jesus' other claims, like Jesus claiming that All of Scripture is true. 
or Jesus claiming that he's the eternal son of God, or Jesus claiming that there's salvation in no one else but him, and it's by faith in his cross. And you start considering those claims, you're going to be driven deeper into Scripture. The Apostle Matthew is showing us that there is a need to proclaim the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he simply stated the resurrection is a great apologetic approach. As you read the book of Acts, it's used by the apostles repeatedly because it evidences the fact that he is who he said he is. He said he was the Son of God. Well, he's raised from the dead. That's proof that he is the Son of God. He said that he would die for sins and bring forgiveness to humanity. The resurrection proves that that was an acceptable sacrifice and that those who believe in him are released. And try it. See how it works. It worked in the book of Acts. However, again, we don't trust in the apologetic itself. We trust in God. We simply declare the truth of the word. Jesus is raised from the dead. He gave, he gave then the authoritative application from his resurrection that as the church, we're supposed to go out and proclaim it and to tell the world so that they can too become followers of him. And so third, we come to this abiding application of missions. We see the great appearance in verses 16 to 17, and Matthew closes with the great commission in verses 18 to 20. So the great appearance, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So Matthew takes us to Galilee for the great appearance and the great commission. It's an appropriate conclusion to the whole story of Jesus' passion and the resurrection narrative. In fact, it's a great conclusion to the whole gospel account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to be preached in all the world until the consummation of the kingdom at Jesus' return. And perhaps this is where the appearance to the more than 500 at one time took, that 1 Corinthians 15, 6 alludes to, could be here. So the 11 and surely others proceed to the designated mountain in Galilee to meet the risen Jesus. We don't know which mountain it is or exactly when they went, but tradition identifies it as Mount Tabor, which also tradition assigns to the transfiguration. But when they saw the risen Jesus, they worship him because he's the Lord God, yet some doubted, it says. The some here we don't know. It could be some of the 11. Maybe it's all of the 11. Maybe it's other disciples that are part of the larger crowd. But the word for doubt here, which only occurs here in the New Testament and when Peter's walking on water in Matthew's gospel, it's more properly understood as hesitation or uncertainty. It's not to be confused with unbelief. That would be an overreading of the text here. In other words, it's not really even clear what they're doubting or why they're hesitant as they worship him. Is it because they don't really know? Is the resurrection itself what they're doubting? Is it, is it the reality of it all? Is it the meaning of it all? Is it just simply wondering what's next? Perhaps they're simply overwhelmed and hesitant to believe it all at first, because they, you know, they hadn't anticipated the resurrection, let alone thought beyond it what it might mean. You see, the full transformation of the disciples would require Pentecost and the coming and dwelling of the spirits upon the church. And the readers of Matthew know that. In fact, we'll celebrate Pentecost this year on May 23rd. Well, then comes the Great Commission in verses 18 to 20. This is why they're at the mountain. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So these words of Jesus prevail over everything. His authority in the text. And notice the theme of allness here. The word all actually appears four times in the Greek. All authority. All the nations, or rather, all the people groups, better translation. All that I commanded you, and literally, it's all the days. Not just always there in the English, but it's all the days. Four alls in this passage. It talks about the supremacy again of Jesus' authority in this whole situation as now the Son of Man in this new stage that's been set in the history of redemption. He's soon going to be taken up into heaven and enthroned as the mediatorial king, and he is going to rule over all for the accomplishment of his gospel purposes in this world. The ascension would take, four, take place 40 days after his resurrection. Uh, we'd celebrate Ascension Thursday if we, if we were to do that on May 13th this year. It's from this position of universal authority that Jesus now speaks and he gives the command to his church to be on mission. And he commands his disciples, not just the eleven, but even so, if he just commands them, they are representative leaders for the whole church. They're commanded to go make more disciples out of all the peoples in the world in this period of the history of redemption. And it will conclude when Jesus returns in glory. He himself said, back in chapter 24, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And it has to be done because it's recorded as well in chapter 5 of Revelation, where they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." I want to take a little bit of a closer look at at the Great Commission here to clear up some misconceptions that are out there. First of all, the imperative in this sentence is very clear. It's to make disciples. That's the main command in verses 19 to 20. Now, there are three other verbs in the sentence that are translated variously in English, but they're participles, actually, in the original language. Go, baptizing, and teaching. And so this syntax has been over-interpreted at times, and it leads to very unusual conclusions sometimes. For example, one incorrect way of understanding is that some have translated it or tried to promote a view that it's as you go, make disciples. Now, that's true enough in life, as you go, make disciples, but that's not the point. That's not what the text says. It's way too lax of an interpretation. So let me try to explain some of the structure of the sentence very simply and helpfully for you. But simply put, when you have this construction in the original language, all the participles take on the imperatival, the command force of the main command. That means that go is a command just like make disciples. So in other words, guess what the best translation is? Go and make disciples. I mean, who would have known? Go and make disciples. It's one command for worldwide missions, and there is no option for any church. If we're going to be a faithful church, we have to go out and make disciples. Every church has to. That's a biblical church. 
So then when you get to the phrases baptizing and teaching, they're commands too. But since they follow the imperative and the structure rather than precede it, some evidence would suggest that the relationship is that it's less forceful in nature and more modal. Let me explain. So in other words, these two commands simply describe how it happens, how it unfolds in real time. It's the characterization of the fulfillment of the main command. But it's not the means of accomplishing it which is another confusion that has been out there too, is that somehow all we need to do is get people in the water. You know, if we can go somewhere, quickly teach the gospel, get a quick, raise your hand, accept Jesus, and then go get baptized in the water, that somehow you fulfilled the Great Commission. That's not what's going on here either. That's not, baptism and teaching are not the fulfillment of it. They're a characterization of how it unfolds. And so, our command is to make disciples. A disciple is a learner, somebody who follows Jesus, somebody who obeys Jesus, somebody who believes in Jesus. And then that will bring about the natural result of submission in baptism, because it's the initiatory right of becoming a Christian, and then obedience to all other instructions that Jesus gave. So, the text is very well translated in most English versions. Go and make disciples, etc. It's very well translated. So don't be confused by people that try to give you some new twist. Or don't be enamored by some new interpretation that brings in an oddity that somehow the church in all of its history has never discovered until that one person figured it out. So the application is very clear. So it's simple. Go find a non-Christian and disciple him. That's the application. It's pretty simple. Go find a non-Christian and disciple them. So this passage is also perhaps the clearest New Testament text that expresses the doctrine of the Trinity in it, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are many other passages in the New Testament, but this is one of the clearest. Also, here is explicit teaching regarding the, the significance of baptism in its relationship to the gospel of God. Baptism is a symbol of the spiritual reality of what's taken place in a person's heart where they've been brought into fellowship with the triune God through faith in the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has never been uncertain about the importance of baptism, primarily because of this passage of Scripture. Although the church has practiced a wide variety of methods and ceremonies over the centuries, But Christian baptism was instituted by Jesus Christ himself. And as part of obedience to be incorporated into the fellowship of his family of God in the church. It symbolizes entry into it. If you've not been baptized as a believer, I would strongly encourage you to do that in obedience to your risen Savior. And if you'd like to talk about it, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Well, next, the most encouraging words come from Jesus Christ especially in light of this overwhelming responsibility he's just given us. I mean, as Christians, we've heard this passage so many times. We just say the Great Commission, and everybody knows what passage we're talking about typically. But when you think about what he's actually asking us to do, it's like, it's almost like crazy talk. It's like, go transform the whole world. I want you to go, like, convert everybody you find. And you think about that, that's like, there's no possible way. 
I mean, how in the world can we do that? And people are just supposed to believe when you tell them? But he says, I am with you all the days to the very end of the age. This means that Jesus is saying many things by this. He's saying he's God. He's the exalted Lord in Christ. That somehow he himself from his position of authority in the heavens, he's going to guide his church and empower his church to fulfill this great commission. We're not left on our own to get it done. To think about how to do it, to strategize how to do it, the power to get it done, it doesn't come from us, our ingenuity, our wisdom, our great speeches. And then it's also Jesus saying he's going to provide the support you need, he's going to provide the protection you need as a church as you proclaim the gospel. Because you know what? Some of you are going to die doing it. And that's what we read in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. Jesus said he would continue to do this without limitation, without interruption until the very day he comes back. Jesus says that then this is why we can do missions, you see, to the glory of God without fear. There's no reason to be afraid. And, you know, ask a missionary sometime to tell you some stories about how Jesus, how they felt his presence and how he's been with them in doing the mission. See, our Apostle Matthew ends his gospel here with the most inspirational words, and he ends here because this is where the church should be focused until the return of Jesus. There is no question that missions is the mission of the church. That's without dispute. It's right here. This is the mission of Calvary Evangelical Church, Free Church, just like every other evangelical church. The mission is missions. And the abiding application of the resurrection is missions. It was Jesus' own idea. Do you see Matthew's point that the church and and every church has to be involved? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Who is even living around us, the people groups that might be local? Do you see that Jesus, your Lord, commands this of you even personally? Oh, it's wonderful, of course, to be praying and sending and supporting missionaries, but there's even more to do, and that's doing it ourselves. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and he himself gave the authoritative, operational application of his resurrection to his church, and that is to go and make disciples of all the peoples in the world. So the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact that has enormous eternal implications for all of humanity. It's part of the gospel message itself. And without the resurrection of Jesus, when we tell the story in the gospel, we're missing part of the gospel. The resurrection is part of that story that Jesus was crucified and then he rose again. His sacrifice for sin was complete and accepted and it can cleanse you from all of your sin. And that his resurrection from the dead proves that he was who he said he was. He's the eternal son of God who has become man, who died for sin, has been resurrected, and it shows that it was acceptable sacrifice to God the Father on our behalf. And the Apostles Matthew now at the end of his gospel account is not only that we believe this, which he knows we do, but it's that we obey it. Yeah, that we obey the resurrection. And we fulfill the Great Commission.
Now, maybe this mission connection is new for you this Easter. You know, verses 1 to 10, the whole glory of the resurrection account is very, very inspiring. And the apologetic that Matthew inserts in there dealing with those who deny is a very encouraging passage to read. And the words of Jesus Christ at the end are are motivating, and it's all there to tell us to go and make disciples of all the peoples of the world. So the resurrection and its gospel needs to be proclaimed by the church to every people group with intense zeal to get the job done. And this church, just like every other church of Jesus Christ, is a gospel messenger to the world. And we each have our own specific callings that Jesus calls us to, to do, a part to complete and to finish his work. May this mission priority become an obvious part and always be an obvious part of our vision here at Calvary and our unique values. And I hope to see that as we start working on them in the coming years. And my prayer is that God would even give us more grace and more faith to do greater and greater exploits for the kingdom of God. The gospel mission of the church is exciting. It's the most wonderful purpose that you can be called to in the purpose of your life, to be able to serve with your gifts and to support with all your resources and all your might and to speak to people about Jesus Christ. Well, finally, in conclusion this morning, you know, Easter Sunday is in celebration of the resurrection. It's something we actually celebrate every Sunday. It's Resurrection Day celebration. And it reminds us of what we read in Colossians 3.3, this truth, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we also will be revealed with Him in glory. Have a glorious Easter day and celebration of whatever you're doing with your family or friends today. Let me pray for us and we'll conclude. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross, that you paid the penalty, the fullness of it, for our sins. And we praise you that you were raised from the dead, that our salvation was fully accomplished, and that we stand justified before God the Father. We also thank you for the gift of faith that you have given to us that we can look at you and see that this is exactly the Savior we need and that you unite us to yourself in true salvation through this faith. It's a blessing again to see it today in Matthew 28. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would encourage us in the truth that we read, the truth of the Word, and that this this truth would embolden us to speak even more clearly and directly with people about the gospel. And finally, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would motivate us as your people to accomplish your mission and that you would guide us specifically as a church and what it is you want us to be doing in the future to bring you even more glory. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.